1: Well, hey there again, and we have survived the month of October. The calendar has officially flipped to November, and great to have you with us back aboard on the SportsMediaWatch.com podcast. I am the somewhat rested, somewhat capable host, TJ Reeves. He is the owner-operator of SportsMediaWatch.com. You read him all the time. You hear him on this podcast. John Lewis, a.k.a. Paulson, back aboard. Did you have a nice weekend, John? Good to be back with you.
2: Oh, not really. You know, it's Halloween. You know, you uh, deal with the trick-or-treaters. <laughs> you you didn't joked have last enough week candy, that dude. you
1: might have a few. Did you have some that rang the doorbell?
2: Yeah. I had more trick-or-treaters than I've ever seen as, in my life. Uh,
1: you Maybe know, the word point. was out that John has good candy. I have to confess, I believe we were talking on last week's podcast, I wasn't sure if my 13-year-old twins would participate. They did. Uh, we did have some that came by in my neighborhood in the, uh, the northern suburbs of Tampa. So hopefully everybody was safe. I have, John, far more candy in my house than I need to have. We've got to get rid of it because you know who's going to end up eating it. That's I'm talking, yes. I'm talking about me. That's not good. But I'm glad that we all survived this weekend. I survived a double dip being in Norman, Oklahoma, to see Oklahoma bushwhack Texas Tech in Big 12 play and improve to 9-0 and unbeaten on the season. And then a wild Sunday afternoon in the Superdome where the New Orleans Saints gutted out An important win for them, but lost quarterback Jameis Winston in the process. Tom Brady threw a couple of interceptions uh, in the game, and the Saints defeated the Buccaneers, handing them their second loss in NFL play. And that will tie in to John talking about uh, Joe Davis of uh, Fox filling in for Joe Buck uh, on the main broadcast with Troy Aikman of that game. So lots to get to. Uh, again, a reminder, however you found this podcast, social media link, promotion through John's website, sportsmediawatch.com. Please subscribe or follow us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You don't have to pay. You don't have to subscribe and pay on Apple Podcast or Spotify. Just follow it. You can automatically get episodes for free. Everywhere else, subscribe, follow, whatever the case is, on Google Podcasts, on Spotify, et cetera. Just search Sports Media Watch, and it will come up uh, wherever you get podcasts on the various platforms. So with that promotion out of the way, I have to confess, I have not seen a lot of the World Series. I know there is drama. I know they are now at the time that we're taping moving back to Houston after the Astros. I love this phrase, John, staved off elimination. I don't know that staved off has any other uh, prominence in the American lexicon other than like a series of, of NBA finals games, World Series games, Stanley Cup playoff games. So staved off elimination, I love. And I have a friend of mine, Henry, who listens to this podcast, who's in Virginia. He will text me staved off elimination when it has nothing to do with anything. Staved off, stave off, he loves that. The Astros have done that. The World Series stays alive. John, what are your thoughts? And what are your thoughts about the numbers, uh, ratings wise, et cetera, about the World Series, if you would?
2: Well, the ratings are about what we would have expected, right? Uh, We're talking uh, some of the worst numbers in World Series history, if not for last year. Uh, but because of last year, because the bar was set so low, these numbers are up double digits and, uh, you know, a 6.1 rating for game one a 5.8 for game two, we'll see what comes of the game three and game four numbers, you know, not necessarily the greatest performance, you know, from a ratings perspective that we've ever seen for the fall classic, uh, and went back close to the worst. I think the first two games rank among the 10 lowest rated and least watched ever in the world series, but you know, up is up, right? up is up uh and uh, when all is said and done you know certainly this is a series given the matchup given it's houston atlanta very regional first two games were not particularly compelling there's a matchup that very easily could have been you know even lower than it is i mean i guess you would think right so i i don't think fox should be pleased or relieved but they shouldn't be rending their garments either you know it is what it is. The good thing is next year, basically any matchup should be a three-year high, right? Uh, you know, I mean, unless it's raised brewers, which then then you're in even worse shape. But uh, look, uh, yeah, you know, it certainly doesn't help the pace of play is kind of dragging a bit. You know, I uh, found this uh, ratings chart that uh, this Oklahoma weatherman posted over the weekend uh, and it was very, very interesting because it showed. Wait a
1: minute. I have to stop you and back up. I was in Oklahoma this weekend, but you just said to me, an Oklahoma weatherman is posting a ratings yeah. chart. Give me a little more on that before you get into the actual numbers. That's, that's intriguing to me, and I was just in the Sooner State.
2: Well, it's uh, Morgan, not City, Seattle. Okay. For whatever reason, I saw K-I-R-O-7, and I assumed it was Oklahoma City. But he is the chief meteorologist of K I R k-i-r-o-7 news in seattle a cbs affiliate owned by cox media group okay He's putting all the information. he has all that information just in his bio so i figured i'd, I'd share it anyway uh he posted this on uh, uh on his twitter feed it's a chart of the top 10 rated shows uh in uh, 1986 uh from october 20th to the 26th And uh, there are four World Series games on that list, each of which has at least a 25.6 rating, right? It's a massive kind of rating compared to now. But the top show of the week was the Cosby Show. The Cosby Show had a 35.4 rating. And that 35.4 rating and 54 share was leading into game five of the World Series that same night on the same network, which had a 29.8 rating and a 47 share, which means there were people in October of 1986 who watched Vanessa and Theo and then turned off their TV when the Mets and Red Sox started playing. And that was a night, Boston was up 3-1. They could have clinched their first World Series since 1918 that night. So all of which is to say, when we look back at the ratings from then and we go, man, look how great those ratings are. We got to keep in mind that the Cosby show was doing better, that 60 Minutes was at a 26.3 that same week. That Murder, she wrote, was at a 25.3 that same week. Even <laughs> Growing Pains and Who's the Boss, neither of which were even any good, were at a 21 rating that week. Moonlighting was at a 20.7 rating oh, that Oh, i week. love like, me geez, some geez,
1: Moonlighting. Sybil Shepherd, yeah. Bruce Willis, love me some Moonlighting. What were they at for that, for that time period?
2: Uh, t- uh, 20.7 for that week with a 30 share on ABC, number 10 for the week. Uh, And uh, the World Series did great. But, you know, NBC averaged a 21.7 rating for that week. CBS averaged a 15.7 and ABC averaged a 14.1. So we got to keep in mind the ratings for everything were so much bigger. And when we see how impressive the World Series was back then, let's be real. It wasn't dramatically
1: better than anything else on TV. But let's keep a couple of other things in mind and all of this perspective. And you've done a great job of laying this out. Primetime NFL football basically didn't exist on Thursday night, much less Sunday night in that time frame. Because if I'm correct, ESPN did not begin until 1987 with, I think, half the season. Correct me if if I'm wrong. I don't believe they did all 16 games. There was no Sunday night primetime game until NBC created it. Correct me again if I'm wrong. 2006 began the Sunday night NBC network game, not the not the ESPN one. The Thursday night games have only come along like in the last 10 years. So the point being the NFL was out of the way, not in prime time. There was only an occasional prime time college football game on ABC or CBS. Saturday night we're talking about. Now it's littered with it, with prime time football in the present day over the last 10, 20 years. So we keep that in perspective. Uh, and at the same time, Network TV shows, to your point about everything gets lower ratings and is at all-time lows, network TV shows now struggle to get, what, a three or a four rating with those numbers you were quoting from 1986? John, give me a little more.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, let's. uh, if I were to go to Nielsen's, uh, Nielsen occasionally will still put out a little ratings chart on their website, although they don't even keep it updated every week, which is on brand for them. But uh, Nielsen, uh, the most recent primetime week, if you take out the NFL, the top rated show was 60 Minutes at a 6.4 rating, which right. is amazing. And of course, inflated by the NFL lead in.
1: Bingo. So. Absolutely. But uh-huh. typical primetime, 8 or 9 p.m. during the week, they struggle to get a four, right? Or struggle to get a three, right? Most of the time, well, the unless top- it's like an American Idol or one uh-huh. of those, right?
2: Well, uh, Equalizer was at a 4.9. That's Queen Latifah's show. Uh, I'm willing to bet Living Single had better ratings than it was on Fox back in the 90s, but uh, by by today's standards, a 4.9 is great. NCIS was a 4.7, and then uh, I believe it was Chicago Fire, one of those uh, derivative Dick Wolf shows that just churn out in 20 minutes, uh, was at a 4.6. So, you know, those are not bad ratings. I mean, they're not. I mean, they're nipping at the heels of NBA finals and World Series games in this environment. But obviously, as compared to 19 whenever, I mean, you know, it's and, you know, the other thing, too, I, I, I want to make this point as well, even back in the more recent days when baseball was really, really on fire in the early 2000s. Right. The ratings weren't as good as they were in the 80s. But I mean, for for post 2000 sports, I mean, those Red Sox, Yankees years, you know, 30 million this 29 million that Marlins, Cubs, I mean, incredible numbers for the LCS during that period, 03 and 04. No baseball game had as many viewers as the series finale of Joe Millionaire did on Fox. Joe Millionaire was a reality show where the guy was not actually a millionaire and the contestants (laughs) didn't find out until the end. And the final episode of that had 40 million. So no game of the 2003 playoffs when the ratings for baseball were spectacular, when you were getting, again, 20 and 30 million viewers for LCS games. No game of the 03 or 04 Red Sox run uh, had as many viewers as the finale of Joe Millionaire in 2003 on Fox. So, again, we look at the ratings for uh, these sporting events kind of in isolation, right? We say, man, look, you know, look how great the ratings were for Jordan and the Bulls. Well, you know, reruns of Seinfeld weren't that much lower. I mean, I mean that, by the way. Right, uh, right. If I had a chart from 1997 in front of me, I could, I could tell you, but I know that the ratings for, uh, for, the, for, for the 98 finals was legitimately better than anything else on TV at that time. But if you go back to the 97 finals, 96, Jordan was not doing much better than a rerun of Jerry, George, Elaine, and Kramer.
1: Right? Uh, I love and, this. I love it. You know,
2: that's love just the, the reality.
1: Answer. Well, and, uh, and you mentioned reality. Reality TV really took over with Survivor in the summer of 2000. And I still remember, I watched. I watched that finale of, uh, of uh, Who Wants to Marry a Millionaire? Or was that? It was Who Wants to Marry who a, wants millionaire. To be a Millionaire? Who, who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Whichever exactly. it was. Or there, there was. There was another one, Who Wants to Marry a Millionaire? I Want to Marry a I Millionaire. I think there was so one. But... There was some of those too. So there were a lot of them. Um, who Wants to Be a Millionaire was The Regis Philbin Show. Right. Yes. And so yeah. and, and just in typical fashion, I've said this other times in other places throughout the years, what they killed it with is rather than once a week, they had to go to twice a week, three times a week, and then it eventually became a syndicated five day a week show. And it got so saturated that everybody got tired of it and it cost them with the ratings. So the game shows in primetime were making a comeback with the reality. I wanted to say two other things. So to go back you need to have a do-over on saying murder she wrote. Can you do your Pat Summerall impersonation? Because all through the 1980s, he would read the promo for CBS, and do you know how he would say it? Can you imitate it? please?
2: uh, I can't do a good Pat Summerall, but he would say murder she wrote.
1: Very good. (laughs) With a friend pause that everybody was waiting for, and that will be followed by the CBS Sunday night movie. And whatever whatever it was, first 60 minutes, then murder she wrote so you did well okay. with that and we are right now at the 35th anniversary week just off of it of the new york mets and that crazy 86 mm-hmm. world series the 35th anniversary and it's worth pointing out again that they had staggered to end the world series on sunday night in that 86 yeah. time frame to stay away from monday night football which was also a goliath but because of a rainout. The dramatic game six was a Saturday night in the middle of the night where the Mets came back from two runs down with two outs in the bottom of the 10th inning to, um, to win game six. They had a rain out the next night, so they were going head-to-head actually with the New York football giants playing the Washington Redskins right across uh, the, uh, the East River uh, in New Jersey. Head-to-head, head. I'd be curious to know what that, and you may have it on that chart, what that Monday night Redskins-Giants game did because I would bet there were 10 million people maybe watching the football, including the gamblers and the rest of the country besides just the baseball. But that's just me speculating on that. But they were trying by schedule to stay away from it, but the rainout put the two together.
2: Yeah, um, you know, so uh, Richard Sandemir says 52.1 million for Mets-Red Sox game seven. Uh, which obviously, you know, a crazy, crazy high number. Of course, uh, nothing for the Monday night football game. You know, I believe I mean that was such a strange situation because my understanding is that Nielsen did not always put out viewership estimates every week. And the week of that game seven was one where they only put out the estimated rating and did not actually estimate an audience. So I don't know. But let me see if I can get in here somewhere.
1: Well, you look at Stan, I still tell this same story, and I believe I told it on a previous podcast when we were talking about the documentary. And again, a free plug, I'm not associated with the documentary, but go watch the four-part documentary, um, One Summer in Queens, I believe it is, which is the four-part series on the 86 Mets, that when Ray Knight hit the go-ahead home run, Calvin Chiraldi, uh, off Calvin Chiraldi, John, he hit the go-ahead home run in like the seventh inning to put them up in game seven. Because remember, the Buckner play, Mookie Wilson, and all of that is only to stay alive. In game six, it's not to win the World Series. You still had to win game seven. The Red Sox, by the way, still had to choke another time. You mentioned they lost game five. They still had to lose game six and game seven to blow it. And so uh, the bottom line is that when Knight hit that home run off Calvin Schiraldi, they were about to uh, run a play in the Monday night game at the Meadowlands at the old Giants Stadium. The Redskins had the ball with Joe Theismann, I believe, at quarterback. And when the ball went over the wall, there were so many people listening on the radio to Mets radio with Bob Murphy and so many people watching on little two or three inch TVs because there were no smartphones, no whatever. They all roared at the same time and the Redskins false started in the game. And Frank Gifford and uh, I believe OJ Simpson may have been doing the game. I don't know if Don Meredith was still there. They, they made the remark because I guess they had a TV on in the booth that that false start is because the Mets just took the lead across the East River in Queens on the Ray Knight home run. It was crazy that you had a play in the NFL game affected by the World Series in the same market. So while I have that uh, that story, I know you were scanning around through the spreadsheet, anything uh, anything good there about that Monday night game in 1986? Well, uh, this uh,
2: contemporaneous article in the uh, LA Times says 34 million homes for Game 7, 7.7 7 million for Monday night football and 7.7 7 million homes for Monday Night Football game in 1986, is pretty low. Yep, You can imagine both events kind of took a hit, even though the World Series game was a record, uh, at least in terms of million homes at that time. Um, So, yeah, uh, it's uh, definitely, let's see, it was a 38.9 rating and a 55 share for Mets-Red Sox game 7 and a 13.8 and a 20 share for Giants against Washington, which I believe that's an overnight. Uh, So uh, still, you know... uh, yeah, I mean it says a lot. I mean the fact is those are terrible numbers from Nettle Football back then. Like 13% of the audience, I'm pretty sure what Small
1: Wonder is probably getting better numbers
2: at that point.
1: So <laughs> but but baseball was so different and so more so much more ingrained um, in the sports culture, the, the America's pastime, the viewership. And it has waned badly. It has dropped off dramatically as we've gone on into the 90s, into the 2000s, uh, et cetera. We continue with John Lewis. You're hearing from him, sportsmediawatch.com. You wanted to say something about pace of play and slowing the game. There's a lot about that. I know uh, Commissioner Rob Manfred and, uh, and those around him that are doing the studies are trying to figure some things out. How much do you think that's harming uh, viewer engagement, et cetera? What do you make of that?
2: I mean, last night's game was weirdly boring for a World Series game five. You know, it was just very, very tough to get into, very stagnant because the Braves fans, you know, they made the foolish mistake of getting too excited after that uh, grand slam. And so they were really, really very subdued once the game got competitive. And so what you end up with is this very quiet kind of not even the good kind of tension, but just like this morose seeming atmosphere where you can tell the fans are just trying to get themselves excited. They, they can feel the sort of Damocles coming down on, onto them. So you you don't necessarily get the excitement. And it's a, the pace of play was ridiculous. It was so slow. It was a slog, you know, it's 11 o'clock in the East and you're in the sixth inning. It's past midnight and you, it's okay going past midnight for a really good game, not so much for a game that's been decided. I just think you know, the ratings are going to be great for the NFL lead-in. They got exactly the lead-in they wanted. The ratings are going to be great, you know, but I don't know. I mean, I'm not as big as other people are on, oh, we got to think of the kids. A lot of people will say, you know, Keith Olbermann was saying this, we've been complaining about this for our, for decades, that, you know, these lead starts are going to turn off a generation of kids. And yeah, there's certainly probably some truth to that. But I also think, you know, I mean, if the late starts in 1986 were getting rid of, the, of an entire generation of kids, then why were the ratings so great in 2003 and 04? You know, I mean, that's 20 years later. So, you know, uh, and and to me, I think it's not so much that you're turning off an entire generation of kids or or anything like that. It's just it's boring to watch. It, it's it's less about the generational aspect and more about man, this is. I can't believe, I mean it's like it was like watching golf only actually less interesting cuz at least with golf if you're getting swing after swing after swing they're cutting to every competitor with baseball you're just sitting around watching this guy take forever to decide to throw a pitch I mean it's the pregnant pauses it's like an Obama speech between each and every you know how Obama takes five, you know 5 minutes in between words right Well, okay, you know, uh, that's one thing. For over three hours, it's quite another. Sure. Uh, And, uh, you know, um, I I, use the Obama example when the easy example would have been, it's like listening to Pat Summerall say murder. Murder. She wrote. She wrote. Very
1: good, yes, to go back to that. And I would love to know this. I don't know this, but I bet if we went back and looked, and somebody that's listening can send it to you at Paulson underscore SMW on social media, hit you up on sportsmediawatch.com. I bet most of those, if not all of those Mets-Red Sox games, were under three hours. Even the extra inning game in Game 6 might have been under three hours or right at three hours. They paid, they played with a pace of play, I'm snapping away, at a much quicker pace, much less take, 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 take. We have the Red Sox and the Yankees to thank, in part, for just totally bogging down baseball starting in the early 2000s with the whole mentality of take a pitch, take a pitch, take a pitch, take a strike, take a ball, take a pitch. We're trying to wear the pitcher down so he doesn't have anything left because everybody's monitoring the pitch count by the fifth and the sixth inning. Take, 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 and it takes forever. So I would love to know that answer. we got to look that up on the box scores, and I would venture to say that that extra inning game might have been right at three hours or under three hours, but most of them probably were under three hours because they played much quicker. Um, and it's it's not less commercials. They were still running commercials in between innings. We know that. It's just they got, on the, they got on the mound, got in the box, and played the game quicker and gone on with it. So I'm just interested in that. I know you were probably scanning around while I was saying that, maybe looking for a box score, et cetera. I could see you doing that, but I'd be curious to know that answer.
2: Well, you know, game six, the 10-inning epic with the uh, walk-off error with Buckner with four hours, two minutes. Last night. snoozer was four hours. Wow. Uh, You know, the interesting thing is um, the the games back then started later. I I said before game five had a Cosby show lead-in, so it didn't start before 8.45, Mm -hmm. right? That was a late start, but it was three hours, nine minutes, so it ended before midnight, right? Yep. Uh, you know, and so you know, these are still pretty late starts, but there's a there's a meaningful difference between ending around eleven thirty, eleven forty five, and ending twelve fifteen, twelve thirty. We saw that with game seven of the 2016 World Series that did not peak at the end. It peaked before the rain delay. Right. It peaked at around 1145, like 50 million viewers. There were fewer people watching when that game concluded around 1215 because people got to go to bed uh, and, you know, it doesn't matter what's, what's going on. You don't want the game to go too long. Right. Uh, so, you know, I mean the late starts are not as big a deal to me. I think, you know, like game three in 1986 was an 8:35 start, which I'm, I'm sure Phil Mushnick was losing his mind over back then, you know, <laughs> but um, it was two hours and 58 minutes. So it was done by 11, what 33 it's so reasonable
1: again, you know. that's a much quicker pace of play. Get it done, get it played and and uh, and get on with it. So yeah, fascinating, fascinating on that point. All right, let's move on. Again, I worked on Buccaneers Radio, the Buccaneers Saints game. I think I may have my ears stop ringing by Tuesday or Wednesday of this week from a very loud superdome. Obviously, most of the country saw the Fox lead into the World Series. Uh, with the coverage with Joe Davis filling in for the longtime Emmy Award-winning Joe Buck, Joe Buck working the World Series with John Smoltz. So Joe Davis filled in with Troy Aikman. Obviously, I worked the game on radio. I couldn't hear Joe Davis fill in. This typically, as you laid out before, was where Tom Brenneman who is now the disgraced former broadcaster at Fox, he would fill in so many years with Troy Aikman on these uh, high-value, high-marquee games when Joe Buck was away. Assess uh, what you saw, what you heard about it, and what others are saying about Joe Davis filling in here because of the World Series.
2: Yeah, well, uh, before Brennan, it was Dick Stockton as well. It would sometimes come in, in in place of Joe Buck. You know, I thought it was interesting. Joe Davis. Uh, he's thirty three years old, which uh, in some corners is extremely young, and some corners, like the Lakers, it's extremely old, right? And then interesting? <laughs> thirty three means you're so young. Meanwhile, if you're a thirty three year old NBA player, you are really, really past your prime. Uh, much less being a 33-year-old figure skater or tennis player or gymnast or any of these things. Can you imagine a 33-year-old gymnast would be like a miracle worker? Like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe what this guy's doing. Long story short, 33 is really only young in this industry, uh, sports broadcasting. But, you know, he's young, right? Uh, And uh, he's really – the interesting thing about him to me is that he reminds me a lot of Buck. He kind of sounds a little bit like Joe Buck looks a lot like Joe Buck, and uh, I kind of wonder if Joe should be worried about his uh, his spot, if he's going to get Wally pipped at some point, because I don't know, I think there's some potential there that I haven't seen with other people at Fox Interesting. Uh, as far as, I know Orand and Marchand in there, uh, I guess it's our, our competitor,
1: although, you know, I don't know, <laughs> their, their podcast John Arand of uh, Sports Business Journal, Andrew Marchand, so that the audience knows what we're talking about at the New York Post, have a podcast out. And they were theorizing how much longer would Joe Buck continue to do baseball, baseball and the NFL, pick one, not the other. Uh, Joe Davis, by the way, has been doing network play-by-play for three or four years for Fox on baseball and major college football, doesn't usually do the NFL. He's more of a college football guy, maybe sometimes the NFL because he also does stuff with the Los Angeles Dodgers during uh, the beginning of the football and the end of the baseball regular season as well as part of his duties. Uh, But it it obviously says a lot that they put him on the Buccaneers Saints game, which I'm sure was massively rated with 20, 22. We don't have the ratings in front of us uh, as we tape and release the podcast, but there were probably 22, 23, who knows, million watching Buccaneers Saints through most of the country. It says a lot that they would put him in that spot as opposed to somebody else they might use.
2: Yeah, And remember, they gave him game seven at the NLCS last year as well, which corresponded with the day when Buck was doing football. So uh, they clearly have a lot of confidence in him. And, uh, you know, of course, by the time Joe Buck was 33, he'd already called numerous World Series, right? I think Joe had actually taken over for some role by that point, right? His was 26. I believe, or... I
1: believe so. Yes, because uh, he would have been probably right around 2002, 2003, where you're talking about, he would have been Fox's lead guy at that point with Aikman, right? And Chris Collinsworth. And they ended up working a Super Bowl somewhere around there, taking over as the number one crew. It is a good point on that. We need to move along, shall we? It's time. Everybody's been waiting. Here we go. Love it or leave it. So you made reference to pace of play. A lot of uh, back and forth on analytics, especially in baseball, on the shift, moving defensive guys around, on pitching changes. Uh, The Braves took a a pitcher out of a World Series game who was pitching a no-hitter, John Lewis, in the fifth inning, who had only thrown 76 pitches. But the analytics Bible said... The matchups aren't as good, put the relievers in and try to get the 27 outs however you can. Love it or leave it, analytics and what it has done to baseball because it obviously influences it heavily with batting, pitching, defense, all of it. What say you on analytics and, and uh, the grand old game?
2: Um,
1: Boy, I mean. Leave it it what doesn't sound like you love it with that pause. It doesn't sound like you love it
2: i think these are the probably the right and smart decisions but i'm not one of those people who you know i mean i'm not you know analytics is the greatest thing ever and this is the way it should be i'm not committed to it i don't care either decision is fine i'm just dropping in in october because it's on you know what i mean i'm just dropping by for for a month of october to enjoy some some baseball games if you want to keep the guy in For the entire game and see if he can pitch a no-hitter. That's great. If you want to pull him, that's fine too. I am. I I profess uh, a complete disinterest in the analytics, uh, uh, you know, debate. I'd much rather discuss the let's go go Brandon culture war than the analytics (laughs) debate. Uh, I, I just don't.
1: Don't care enough about the analytics and that part of it is fascinating, though, that I'm here in the Tampa Bay area. You can see me right now. The audience cannot. I've got a Tampa Bay Rays World Series hat over my shoulder in my office while I do the show that the Rays were the forerunners on all the defensive shifts. The Rays were the forerunners on using a relief pitcher to start the game and kind of reverse the process on pitching to the lineup with the certain guys they would want to use in the first or the second inning as an opening relief pitcher. And now everybody's doing the shift. And everybody's experimenting with relievers in all kinds of crazy ways. So different teams start creating different innovations. I mentioned Red Sox and Yankees would take, 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 take every pitch, take 30 pitches, take 50, 70 pitches in a game. And everybody now mimics that, and it slows the game down. So just it's fascinating that a lot of the analytical stuff, the Rays were forerunners to using it for defense and pitching changes and things like that, and many others uh, now copy it um, as well. Go ahead, John.
2: I was just going to say the one time I did actually care about the analytics was when the Rays uh, basically fumbled away game six of the World Series last year. That actually was something that irritated me because that was throwing away a World Series victory out of some kind of, I don't even really know why they did that. You had a pitcher. I can give you the insight.
1: Blake, Blake Snell was the pitcher. Blake Snell was throwing a one hitter at that point. And the rationale from Kevin Cash, the manager, and again, this is an organizational thing, the rationale was his batting average against goes way up the third time through the lineup and by by any means necessary they were looking to get the last 9 outs with the relievers even if he's pitching a one-hit shutout in a one nothing or two nothing game they swear by the analytics and and by those numbers Blake Snell was irate Blake Snell never pitched another game because he was traded in the offseason for the Rays to San Diego It is still a point of contention in this market. Twelve months later, what was Kevin Cash doing? But he was swearing by the analytics Bible that said that his third time through the lineup, his ERA goes way up, his batting average against goes way up. We were gonna use relievers in that situation. Whatever it's worth. Well, I mean, again,
2: that that would be, you know, when you're when you're blowing a game because of some, you know, whatever research that mm-hmm. you know, that would be where it's a little bit more irritating but in general i profess uh, neutrality i'm not anti-analytics i'm not pro-analytics i just don't care
1: love it or leave it another fun one because i saw the pageantry at oklahoma with texas tech with the uh, sooner schooner out on the field and the marching band are you a big guy love it or leave it on the marching bands And kind of the pageantry of college football, you know, the Ohio State, the marching band dots the eye and a different person dots the eye, you know, Florida Gator fans do the chomp and the bands doing the the different dance. Are you a love? You love that? Or can you leave it with the college football pageantry? Because it's one reason why halftime takes like 22 minutes in college, literally. And halftime takes about 12 or 12 and a half minutes in the NFL. And the game runs longer because they want the marching bands to perform. John, love it or leave it on marching bands and pageantry at halftime of college football.
2: I'm going to say, I'm going to say leave it, but I don't really mean like, I, this is another one where, Hey, if you like it, that's great. You know, I'm not, it's not for me, but you know, uh, it was what Fam uh, FAMU homecoming just this past weekend. Yes. FAMU homecoming is a big deal uh in Tallahassee uh, maybe uh, the most
1: entertaining marching band of them all the FAMU 100 as they're known and it's been that way 40 years John you're exactly right for those for those who don't know like we like to say uh the kids like to say go to YouTube YouTube it and watch the FAMU 100 do a halftime show it's amazing
2: yeah I mean but here's the thing like uh, even that doesn't really give me anything like okay wow that's great I guess yeah, you know, let's get back to the let's get back to the second half, right? Uh, so for me, you know, the dotting the i, you know, the planting the spear at Florida State, which you wonder how much longer they're going to be able to do that, right? I mean, I don't know how much longer they're going to be able to get away with doing that, but you know, all of that stuff. Eh. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'm, well,
1: USC, I has, any- uh, USC has Tommy Trojan come out with the sword and and right. planet he rides in on the horse. And I mean, you, you have a lot of that. But again, for the marching bands, just to tie it in, the NFL used to have marching bands at halftime and halftime used to be longer. And then TV began to dictate, we're not doing the 20 minute halftime thing for marching bands and the pros. We got too many important commercials to run and we got to get back to the game. The lone holdout is the Washington football team. I believe this is still the case. It was the case a year or two ago. There are still members of their band. They march before the game on the field, about a half hour or 45 minutes before the game. They sit in the stands and play in one little section there during different parts, hail to the former Redskins or hail to the Washington football team, whatever they sing now. But there were numerous teams that used to have marching bands in the NFL as recently as like the 80s, just while we talk about the pageantry. And almost none of them have it now. They don't do anything. They don't do anything uh, with that.
2: Because it's absurd. Let's just get back to the second half. Yes. Play the rest of the game.
1: Let's get back. uh, Let's get back to will bring out Red Panda or something. uh, Red Panda, yes. Very exciting, yes, to do do the halftime entertainment. All right, one more because this debate came up this weekend. Love it or leave it. The shot clock is a big topic. Of course, the NBA's had a 24-second shot clock. For 40-plus years, they actually got it from the ABA. The ABA was the first one doing the shot clock back in the 70s, the American Basketball Association, the second league. College basketball eventually went to a 45-second clock. They eventually reduced it to 35. It's now been reduced to 30. Uh, Some believe that the shot clock, especially a 24-second clock or a 30-second clock for college, let's say, Uh, does less to the game now those that are analytics and stat heads say hey it's more possessions it's more opportunities to shoot threes more opportunities to score shot clocks are you a love it guy i'm not i'm not saying we should do without them are you loving the fact though that it keeps the game with many more possessions because of how low the shot clock is in pro and college basketball men's and women's college basketball with the shot clock love it or leave it the shot clock john real quick
2: um i think you know well one i would say the shot clock in the nba i think predates the aba i think that goes back to like the 1950s um, all right we so, gotta look
1: you might be right on yeah, that I, I remember, i'll defer to they were
2: like 19 to 18 games in the 50s they
1: couldn't keep that going um i think uh, <laughs> the three point uh, shot definitely was the aba's yes, first before yes, the, yes, the nba and you're nodding along keep going
2: I think the shot clock, you know, is good college, having a longer shot clock, just, you know, college loves to have the coaches suffocate the life out of the game. And so that's another means by which the coaches can suffocate (laughs) the life out of the game, right? So, uh, you know, uh, I think the shot clock is good. I like the reset to 14 that they have in the NBA. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think uh, 24 seconds is probably the way it should be across the board. 30 seconds is fine too, like they have in the women's college game. The men's college game being at 35 is ridiculous.
1: I think they, well, they did move it to 30, I believe, back two or three years ago, trying to to increase the pace of play. There you go. With college and college basketball about to start up uh, next week, as a matter of fact, uh, with all of this, here we go. With the college game being added to it, it, and uh, we'll see how it goes. I know we've got to wrap up this edition of the sportsmediawatch.com podcast. Reminder, again, subscribe on all podcast platforms, however you found the podcast. Uh, Again, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, follow us, subscribe, whatever the case is. We uh, appreciate it. And we always appreciate John's insight. Read the site, sportsmediawatch.com. Conclusion of the World Series coming this week. Uh, We had a fantastic week in the NFL last weekend. I will be off to Tuscaloosa, Alabama for the primetime LSU-Alabama game uh, that will be on national radio. Tiki Barber and I will do that game. I believe that's an SEC uh, broadcast on ESPN. I do not believe CBS ended up picking that up, but you can correct me on that. The, uh, the primetime Ohio State game, I'm curious how that did against Penn State last week, but now we get back to the bigger college games and the bigger Sunday night and Monday night games as we come down the stretch of the season. So, John, we're anxious to see and read all of that. Anything in closing before we get out of here?
2: Uh, $20 million for uh, uh, Green Bay, Arizona. Very large audience for a mm. Thursday night game. Very large. I wanted to say I was sorry to hear about the passing of Jerry Remy. I was sorry to hear about the passing of Ernie Johnson's son, Michael uh, yep. Bob Neumeier, uh also, and also the great Jovita Moore at WSB in Atlanta. If you grew up on WSB in the early 2000s, it was Monica Kaufman, John Pruitt, and Jovita Moore with Glenn Burns on weather. That was a pretty good team that they had back then. And uh, Jovita was just 54 years old as well and diagnosed with cancer just in April of this year. So I just wanted wow. to say all of about-
1: Condolences all across the board. Jerry Remy, iconic as a player and a broadcaster for those Red Sox teams that obviously won the World Series. You mentioned early Johnson, uh, heartfelt for many years with he, his wife, his family taking care of his son. You'll see much more of that on the NBA on TNT coverage, but the outpouring was everywhere uh, for that. So thank you for hitting up on all of those. And one more thing, happy 15th anniversary to the site. I know you're being modest. You don't make a big deal about this, but you've been doing this for 15 years. Congratulations.
2: Yep, Uh, 15 years as of uh, November 2nd, uh, 2006 is when I started, uh, kind of, uh, I didn't have any particular plan to continue doing it 15 years later. Uh, But, uh, you know, I have been doing the site now for almost half of my life, uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> interesting. And uh you know, uh I think it's been interesting. I it certainly I would never have imagined that it would take off the way it did and I have to give credit to uh, Richard dyke and Jason McIntyre who linked to the site in its very very early stages when it was nothing and uh, just a blog spot that I kind of, you know, created. Uh and uh Richard at that time actually did a write up of it in his Sports Illustrated column and uh, Jason writing for the big lead linked to it. And I definitely appreciate all the help along the way, all the people who've linked to my work or commented. I've had a lot of great commenters over the years as well. And, uh, you know, I mean, I would never have imagined 10 years, much less 15, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm grateful it's worked out the way it is. I mean, it's definitely been, uh, you know, i don't imagine that i'll get an obituary at the end right but if i do it'll be in the first sentence you think
1: i would hope well you know what i maybe bigger things sports could be in it. sportsmediawatchcom has got to be in there though you got 15 yeah. years in my friend Congratulations! there's a lot of websites that don't make it 15 minutes or 15 weeks so you've been That's you've true. been banging away at it i love all of this i love being with you listen uh we appreciate it we're into the month of november thank you for the time john lewis you hey, no problem Always love John Lewis's insight. Again, follow him at Paulson, P A U L L S E N, if I spell it correctly, Paulson underscore S-M-W for Sports Media Watch. Go to sportsmediawatch.com as well. We're done for now on this edition, the first November edition of the sportsmediawatch.com podcast. I am merely TJ Reeves. Thank you for being with us. And again, keep checking us out for the sportsmediawatch.com podcast. Bye.